Hello and welcome to a special winter episode of Bad Gays. I'm Hugh and I'm here with Ben. Hey, Merry Christmas. We've had a, a really busy year um, with a book, promoting it, touring, doing live events. And so we thought we'd drop a sort of special winter Christmas episode. The episode was recorded at Foyle's Books uh, this summer uh, on our book tour with the one and only Sean Fay. And it's about the Victorian sex worker and pornographer Jack Saul. So this is a great episode to listen to today on full blast over the big speakers so that while you're all doing the washing up, Aunt Sue can hear stories about masturbating into an open fire and grandma can join in a good bit of old-fashioned delicious frigging up the bum was that the phrase uh i think it was a reach around a, a, a frigging reach around while being done up the bum yeah okay there we go all right anyway <laughs> yeah. all very grandma friendly i would say it's not safe for work or family but it depends what your work is and what your family are like i suppose yeah, and it should be fun if you're uh, with family and it's complicated or alone and it's complicated or with family and it's great um, or alone and it's great. Um, as always in the show notes, we're going to throw in uh, some references that we use to resource, uh, research the episode. Apologies. Um, the chapter should also serve as a preview for those of you who do not yet have a copy of our book, Bad Gays Homosexual History which is available at badgazepod.com slash book and which will be released this summer in paperback, which should be a more affordable uh, and lighter weight way to get our words into your life. Yeah, and thank you to everyone at Foils um, and to Sean for who, who reads so beautifully some of the extracts from the piece and especially to the audience who came along and asked such interesting questions and were, it was a really great evening. That was the best part about this year was getting to... Um, hang out together and meet all of you and listen to your questions. And, and really every single event we did uh, was still fun and still different. Um, and it was all because of, of the getting to finally have this conversation in actual rooms with you and hear from you and meet you. And thank you all so much for your help and support. And uh, consider this a teaser because January, 2023, Next season, season six, Bad Gaze, uh, it's coming and we have some special episodes in the can. We have some profiles we wanted to do for a really long time. So more podcast is coming your way very soon. Can't wait. So without further ado, um, yeah, this is us live this summer at Foils with Sean Fay talking about uh, Jack Saul. This is time to put your headphones on um, and do the washing up. And when someone asks you why you're laughing, just say, never mind. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us this evening. We are absolutely delighted to be hosting Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller for a recording of their podcast, Bad Gaze, in celebration of the release of their new book of the same name. Tonight, Hugh and Ben are joined by Sean Fay, whose landmark work, The Transgender Issue, was published in paperback last month. Hugh and Ben's podcast, Bad Gaze, spotlights historical figures who have been overlooked in the search for more heroic individuals. Their book of the same name, based on their hugely popular series, asks what we can learn about LGBTQ identity from the more disreputable elements of queer history. I'll leave Hugh and Ben to tell us more. Tonight, the podcast is joined by Sean Fay. Um, the transgenderist you, described by Judith Butler as a monumental work, is a compellingly argued analysis of transgender experience in modern Britain. It is a detailed, radical, powerfully written call for change. 
It's such an enormous pleasure to host the Bad Gays podcast here at the bookshop tonight and to have Hugh, Ben and Sean with us this evening. So please join me in welcoming all of them warmly to Foils. Thank you. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> we're trying something new tonight. For any listeners of the podcast, you'll sort of know how the format of the, of the podcast is, and we're going to try and do a live version, um, taking one character from the book and, um, and talking about their lives in detail. So, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy. <clears throat> Jack Saul. In 1881, London was the largest metropolis the world had ever seen. More people resided in its central boroughs than even today, with great contrast between the lives and lifestyles of the poor and the wealthy. The city was enjoying the spoils of the British Empire, leading to a boom in consumer culture. Anything could be bought if you had the money. But for those who did not, there was only miserable choices. The workhouse, crime, and the concomitant risks of prison, transportation, and death. Victorian London has been described as the beating heart of the empire that pumped capital, troops, and power around the world. It might just as well be described as the drain of the empire, into which the material and human wealth of the colonies flowed. One of those humans was a young Irish immigrant who, were it not for his immense boldness, may well have passed into history unnamed and unremembered. We meet him first in the introduction to a book he allegedly wrote at a tender age of 23, putting his life to date on paper. The gentleman introducing the book describes their first encounter, which is well worth quoting at length. The writer of these notes was walking through Leicester Square one sunny afternoon last November when his attention was particularly taken by an effeminate but very good-looking young fellow who was walking in front of him, looking in shop windows from time to time and now and then looking round as if to attract my attention. Dressed in tight-fitting clothes, which set off his Adonis-like figure to the best advantage, especially about what snobs call the fork of his trousers, where evidently he was favoured by nature by a very extraordinary development of the male appendages. <laughs> he had small and elegant feet, set off by pretty patent leather boots, a fresh-looking beardless face with almost feminine features, auburn hair and sparkling blue eyes, which spoke as plainly as possible to my senses and told me of the handsome, uh, that the handsome youth must indeed be one of the Mary Anns of London, who I had heard were often to be seen sauntering in the neighbourhood of Regent Street or the Haymarket on fine afternoons or evenings. Presently, the object of my curiosity almost halted and stood facing the writer as he took off his hat and wiped his face with a beautiful white silk handkerchief. That lump in his trousers had quite a fascinating effect upon me. <laughs> Was it natural or made up by some artificial means? If real, what a size when excited. <laughs> How I should like to handle such a manly jewel, etc. <laughs> All this ran through my mind and determined me to make his acquaintance in order to unravel the real and naked truth. Also, if possible, to glean what I could of his antecedents and mode of life, which I felt sure must be extraordinarily interesting. The introduction ends after a little mutual masturbation into an open fire with... <laughs> <laughs> it does. Uh, with, with the writer suggesting to the young man that he write down the history of his sexual experiences. 
What follows is an eye-watering pornographic memoir of sodomy, oral sex, and prostitution. Some regard the book, titled The Sins of the Cities of the Plain, a reference to the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities supposedly destroyed by God in punishment for their practicing of anal sex, from where, obviously, we get the word sodomy. Some regard it as fiction, and perhaps the first entirely, entirely homosexual erotic fiction. But the subject of the memoir, Jack Saul, was a very real person. He was born into a working-class Catholic Irish family in Dublin in 1857, only five years after the Great Hunger, a devastating famine caused by potato blights and which British colonisers orchestrated into widespread death and dispossession. It's thought that a quarter of the country's population either died or emigrated during the Great Hunger, and it followed on an earlier famine in 1841 in which the country's population had already fallen by 20%. His parents and grandparents were one of the many people from rural population who were forced from their ancestral homes and had moved to the south of the city from County Wicklow. Many millions more migrated overseas, especially to North America. It seems fairly certain that Saul's early life was a tough one, living in cramped tenements on Duke Street, surrounded by a large extended family. His father drove a horse-drawn cab around the city, which was not a hugely profitable endeavour, and his mother was illiterate, and like most working-class people at the time, he lost brothers and sisters early in childhood. Opportunities were hard to come by, and you had to make your own luck. As a port city that also contained a very large British garrison, Dublin was home to one of Europe's largest red light districts at the time, known as Monto, after Montgomery Street. According to a local legend, the future British king, Edward VII, even lost his virginity in the neighbourhood, and later took his son and heir, Prince Albert Victor, to the district in disguise. Prostitution and brothels were an intrinsic part of most Victorian cities. While not respectable, they were, at very least, visible, and the coalition of the state and moral reformers had not yet coalesced as it would do in the 1870s and 1880s to shut down prostitution, cruising and other sex cultures as vice. While Monto offered a large population of female sex workers, the presence of the barracks meant that there were many poorly paid working class young soldiers who boosted their income through selling sex. The idea that the British army contained uh, a culture of sex work might surprise a modern reader, but well into the 20th century, London's Wellington barracks, which are on uh, St James's Park, um, home to the foot guards and conveniently located near a large number of uh, large parks, was a site where men could pick up working-class soldiers for sex. Certainly the working-class Jack, still a teen, would have, had more than, would have been more than aware of the presence, not just of sex workers, but of their clients. When he was 17, he met a soldier named Martin Kerwin, a well-off member of the Irish Protestant gentry, whose family had prospered during the Protestant ascendancy. Kerwin was 28, and like Saul, raised in the city, enough a part of the daily fabric of life that amongst the homosexual community, he was known as Lizzie. They began an affair, and Kerwin was the key to a door that opened up Dublin's well-to-do queer community. Through him, Saul met Gustavus Cornwall, secretary of the General Post Office, an older, well-respected British official who lived in a large house at 17 Harcourt Street, just off St Stephen's Green. Whether he was well-respected within Dublin's homosexual demimonde is another question. It's hard to tell the degree to which his nickname, the Duchess, was a term of affection or mockery. Jack began attending the parties held by this well-off coterie, where according to the tastes and norms of the age, younger working-class men, soldiers and police recruits attended alongside men from the richer colonial class. Jack began to make friends with fellow rent boys at these parties, as well as other men of standing, such as James Ellis Furch, a senior detective with the Royal Irish Constabulary part of the British administration that worked out of Dublin Castle. 
With such important new friends, Jack could see a way out of poverty, if only they could help him find a job. It was probably the Duchess who helped him get a job on the same street he lived on at, 82 Harcourt Street, a servant to a young Catholic medical doctor, Dr. John Joseph Cranny. Yet Jack remained friends with his old rent boy colleagues, especially one called Bill Clark, and probably still moonlighted doing sex work. It was with Clark that Jack was arrested on, uh, in October of 1878 in mysterious circumstances that looked like the theft uh, of a coat. Although the two were sent to a remand prison awaiting trial, they were ultimately acquitted as it came unclear whose coat had actually been stolen in the first place. But still, unsurprisingly, Saul lost his job and so he decided to emigrate to London. There wasn't much chance of domestic service there, not without a reference and with an Irish accent. And so he took to prostitution again, working the streets around Piccadilly where homosexual men cruised for sex. For a while, he lived with another man, Charles Hammond, and his wife, with Hammond acting as a sort of pimp. He returned to Dublin for a few months following his father's death in 1880, but he was soon back in London, uh, living in Soho at 36 Leal Street, barely a minute's walk from Leicester Square, and actually just down the road from this shop. It was 1881, and it's at this moment that the young man, still in his early 20s, begins to write his memoirs. So while the sins, of the, city, the sins of the Cities of the Plains is still uh, a remarkable and um, uh, effective piece of pornography, it, <laughs> it should, uh, as, yeah, as the audience <laughs> seems to think, uh, it should be read with a pinch of salt. For a start, Saul's account of his... Yeah. <laughs> For a start, Saul's account of his early life is entirely different from uh, the reality as we now know it. Turns him from a working-class Dubliner into a well-to-do young man from Suffolk. Suffolk. Uh, however, that might be expected because there's many reasons why a, a young sex worker in Victorian England might want to disguise um, his identity. And even if many of the sex scenes had been accentuated for dramatic effect, perhaps even written by a different hand, it certainly seems likely that the publisher, William Lazenby, at least helped shape the work. They still offer interesting insights into the Victorian homosexual underworld, insights that are supported by other sources. For example, the descriptions of the trafficking of children for sexual exploitation match those offered just four years later by the provocative campaigning journalist W.T. Stead in his four-part special, The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, written for the Pall Mall Gazette. Stead's work, part in investigative journalism, part moral panic, and part plausibly deniable pornography, be <laughs> became part of a wider campaign of public outrage by early feminists and anti-vice campaigners for a change in the law regarding sexual offences. M much of the action of the sins of the cities of the plains describes real-life places that are barely disguised with the new names but would be instantly recognisable to the urbane London gentlemen who were presumably the audience for the book. For example, the shop the author names Signet and Ego is very clearly a stand-in for an actual high-end drapery named Swan and Edgar that sat in uh, Piccadilly Circus on the corner of Regent Street in Piccadilly. It's after Saul, or Saul, is fired from Signet and Ego that he becomes more acquainted with London's homosexual life thanks to a high-end sex club and through which we learn of his supposed encounter with two notorious queer figures of Victorian life, Thomas Bolton and Frederick Park. The club is located just off Portland Place and it cost 100 guineas to join, an absolutely colossal sum at the time, almost a year's wage for a skilled tradesman. Arriving there, another young rent boy regales Saul with stories of gangbangs of clergymen and his time as a soldier and, quote, considerably opened my eyes as to how the sin of Sodom was regularly practiced in the modern Babylon. 
The rent boy then prepares him for his first fucking in the club by dressing him in a, quote, a charming female costume. He acted as lady's maid, fitted my bust with a pair of false bubbies, frizzed my hair with curling irons, and fixed me up by adding a profusion of false plaits behind. The club's owner, the fortuitously named Mr. Inslip, <laughs> he, ve he then takes him to a room with ten men and eight other uh, women, or, or um, as you will. Saul is assigned to an elderly man who, as the night progresses, plies him with booze before reaching under his dress to fondle his cock. Then, at 2am, the lights are extinguished and the action begins with the old man, quote, lifting up my skirts. Behind, he knelt down and kissed my bottom, buggering me with his tongue till the hole was well moistened. Then, getting up, I felt a fine prick brought up to the charge. It hurt me a little, but he was soon in, then passing hands around my buttocks. He frigged me most deliciously as he worked furiously in my bum. <laughs> and so it continues with the... <laughs> With, I live in Berlin, I thought I'd seen shit. Yeah. With the, uh, the partners swapping multiple times uh, until the sun rises. And Saul recounts that such, such sex parties became regular occurrences for him. He was even, he claims, at a party with actors Thomas Bolton and Frederick Park and Lord Arthur Clinton at Haxel's Hotel on the Strand. The story of Bolton and Park is a fascinating one that sheds much light onto contemporary Victorian attitudes towards homosexuality and gender but it throws doubt on the veracity of Saul's memoir, as Lord Arthur Clinton, an important player in the story, had died, possibly at his own hand, in June of 1870, when the historical Jack Saul had not even reached his teens. The author describes how at the party, Bolton and Lord Clinton retreated to a private room, and Saul kneeled to watch through the, through the keyhole as they exchanged blowjobs, before Clinton rim, rimmed Bolton and then fucked him. The sight, he recalls, excited him, and through his friendship, the two, he is granted access to the highest echelons of society, resulting in him, still dressed in women's attire, getting a blowjob at a party hosted by the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VIII, no, seventh. Happy Jubilee, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> While it's impossible that, that Saul could have been involved in such circles, it's not impossible that someone, um, the potential author or co-author of the book, was not least because those were the circles that Lord Arthur Clinton, MP for Newark and brother of the Prince of Wales' mistress, did indeed move in. Thomas Bolton and Frederick Park had been raised in reasonably well-off circumstances. Unlike Saul's account of his own period of cross-dressing, it doesn't seem that they took up cross-dressing as an accessory to prostitution, but for their own personal reasons. And they did, uh, and they did not ju just dress in what was regarded as, quote, women's attire for sex alone, but dressed in their day-to-day -day life attending public events such as boat races and the theatre. As with homosexual history, it's extremely difficult to retroactively assign to them a specific transgender identity as we might understand it today. But by the same token, it's very clear that they lived lives where their identities as Stella and Fanny, as they were addressed, were meaningful parts of their lives, and that in living those identities, they transgressed the understood boundaries of sex and gender in the society they lived in, despite the significant danger were they to be quote-unquote uncovered. They took a room in Mrs. Stacy's House of Accommodation in Wakefield Street. Most establishments that fell under that title were little more than flop houses where sex workers who worked the streets could take a john. But Mrs. Stacy's was quite different and was a place where people like Bolton and Park could change into women's clothing. More importantly, they could store their clothing, wigs and makeup there, a necessity consider considering that many, like Bolton, still lived with their parents. Although still in their early 20s, they had maintained this way of life for many years, both in the street and on stage, where they performed, whereas actors, they performed women's roles. 
It was in a touring theatre production that they met Lord Clinton, and Stella Bolton soon became his lover. The two spent most of their time together, regarding themselves as sisters, consistently using female pronouns or titles, uh, something, as we saw in Dublin as well, that cisgender gay men also did. However, considering how provocative it would be were they to be uncovered, uh, unlike the majority of cisgender gay men, their public persona was clearly deviating from the established gender and sex norms. Considering that the two were both indiscreet in their behaviour and reckless in the paper trail they left behind, including letters and photographs of themselves as Fanny and Stella, it seemed inevitable that they would end up in trouble. Sometime, sometime around 1869, a, a policeman named um, Detective Officer Chamberlain had begun a year-long surveillance of the pair, gathering evidence of whatever crimes he could in order to prosecute them. In April of 1870, the two decided to visit the theatre with two gentlemen, not knowing their house on Wakefield Street had been under close surveillance for, uh, for the past two weeks. Inside the theatre, and drunk, the two behaved rather badly, making lewd gestures at other theatre-goers from their private box <laughs> and causing a scene in the public bar. As they were leaving the theatre, they were seized by police officers and hauled off to Bow Street Police Station. There, they were subject to a humiliating inspection by the police, and the next morning, still in their crinoline dresses, uh, although with makeup rather dishevelled, they were dragged through a cruel and baying mob of observers to attend their remand hearing. Um, it gets, yeah, it gets pretty nasty. Um, they were charged with sodomy, conspiracy to commit, commit sodomy, and outraging public decency, and held in prison following another degrading physical inspection by a quack doctor, who regarded their rectums to have been permanently di dilated by anal sex. Their penises were also deemed unusually long. Asked to explain why, the doctor replied that, quote, traction might produce elongation of the penis and testicles. <laughs> Nonsense, of course, as other doctors later testified, but a symptom of the uh, deep body horror that sodomy induced in many respect respectable figures at the time. Lord Arthur Clinton died of scarlet fever before the court case, although police suspected he'd actually faked his own death, escaping to the continent or the United States. It was not the first time, nor the last, that an uh, aristocrat implicated, accused, or even convicted in this damnable sin did a runner. Even Oscar Wilde, when he was eventually freed from Reading Jail, escaped to France, where the laws and social attitudes were considerably less strict. If Clinton had faked his own death, he need not have bothered. Despite the odds being stacked against him in terms of social attitudes, the prosecution fluffed the case, and Fanny and Stella were acquitted uh, as actually proving that sodomy took place was a difficult task. They dropped their not guilty pleas on the morals charges, allowing them to be bound over for two years. Essentially, they were to agree not to get into any more trouble. They both left the country for the United States, where they continued to perform. Uh, Bolton lived until the first decade of the 20th century, dying in England, while Park died just a decade later, around the time that the historic Saul arrived in London. The Bolton and Park case is remarkable, as it landed just as the concept of a homosexual identity and subculture was emerging both between the new discipline of sexologists and in wider society, both in the UK and Germany and the rest of continental Europe. And as moral panics about this new type of man started to grow, tied to worries about prostitution and immorality. It also happened in a strange interlude between two periods where the state had tough tools with which to discipline same-sex activity. The increased suppression of same-sex activity and gender variance during these moral panics played a significant role in growing public awareness of sexually deviant behavior. Anal sex had been outlawed by the Buggery Act of 1533, but that did not specify sex between two men, merely non-productive sex, 
and was used to prosecute same-sex and opposite-sex offenses, often non-consensual, same reason why blowjobs were illegal in Texas until 2003. The law, therefore, was an attempt to prosecute criminal acts rather than to define a criminal type of person, and this was the only law on the books that pertained to men who had sex with men. The crime, however, was a capital offense, and men were executed for consensual anal sex right up until, but not after, sorry, Naomi Wolf, the 1830s. I had to. There was an attempt to reform the law in 1841, undertaken by Lord John Russell, which failed due to a lack of parliamentary backing. But increasingly, judges were refusing to enact the death sentence as was required. A compromise had to be reached for legal sentences not to be carried out made a mockery of the law. In 1861, Parliament passed the Offenses Against the Person Act, making the penalty for buggery a minimum of 10 years of hard labor. For many, in Victorian prisons equipped with the punishing treadmill, a virtual death sentence anyway. Yet as the 19th century progressed, cases like Bolton and Park opened the eyes to a homosexual subculture that was identified in the popular mind with male prostitution, which put new pressures on authorities to crack down. Historian Jeffrey Weeks suggests that during the trial there was significant uncertainty as to what the actual crime consisted of, and the various doctors on the case had come to no agreement as to what physical proof of sodomy might look like they simply had not seen enough cases. He writes that as, of la as late as 1871, concepts of homosexuality were extremely underdeveloped, both in the Metropolitan Police and in high medical and legal circles, suggesting the absence of any clear notion of a homosexual category or any social awareness of what a homosexual identity might consist of. Even if there was a general awareness that a subculture around male prostitution existed, in court, married men were less likely to be found guilty of buggery than unmarried men. To put it simply, the authorities knew that what Bolton and Park were up to was wrong, even if they did not know exactly what that consisted of. They were clearly transgressing certain gender and sexual boundaries, however, and something had to be done. It is unsurprising there was not much understanding of homosexuality as a distinct sexual identity among society's higher echelons. The word homosexual had only been coined in 1869, and even then in a limited-run pamphlet published anonymously and in German by the Austrian writer Karl Maria Kertbeni. The Austro-German psychiatrist Richard von Kraft-Ebing documented homosexuality extensively in his 1886 book on sexual paraphilias, Psychopathia Sexualis, but it was not until the very end of the century, in 1897, that the first English book on the subject, Henry Havelock Ellis's Sexual Inversion was published. This idea of sexual inversion, that a homosexual had inverted the normal sexual characteristics, and the ideas that these attributes were congenital, was not developed on the psychiatrist's couch or in the medical lab alone. These were already concepts that were swimming around the social circles of some upper-class men, including um, poets. Indeed, <laughs> We've all known them, right? Um, indeed, Havelock Ellis's co-author of Sexual Inversion was the poet and literary critic John Addington Simmons, who had earlier published A Problem in Greek Ethics in 1873. <laughs> Simmons' book, which you'll be shocked to know, was partially inspired by the poetry of Walt Whitman, um, examined the role of pederasty and homosexual desire in ancient Greece, a model which had been used to justify and explain sex between men since the time of Hadrian. Others adopted the same approach. This model of inversion positing that homosexual men were female souls trapped in male bodies through accident of birth 
and the notion that pederastic relationships was a worthy tradition inherited from classical civilization were also taken up by the Uranian poets, a loose group of poets and writers working in Britain in the second half of the 19th century. This third sex, many believed, offered a noble form of love between equals and found expression in the work of Edward Carpenter, Oscar Wilde, and his wretched and evil twink boyfriend, Lord Alfred Douglas, or Bosey. Wilde takes this approach in his testimony for his trial in 1895, stating, oh, I'm supposed to pretend to be Oscar Wilde badly. It's <laughs> giving Stephen Fry. <laughs> uh, the love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection for an elder, for a younger man, as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Pluto made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is that deep spiritual affection that is as pure as it is perfect. It dictates and pervades great works of art like those of Shakespeare and Michelangelo, and those two letters of mine, such as they are. It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful, it is fine, it is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. It is intellectual, maybe, <laughs> and, it, and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man when the elder man has intellect and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. <laughs> that, it should be so, um, that it should be so the world does not understand. The world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it. The figure of the invert, a literary and spiritual third sex that existed within the social elite and medical establishment, was joined by the complementary figure of the pervert, um, as, it was coming to be under as it was coming to be understood by the legal system. Perverts had no innate problem that drove them to sex with other men. They simply lacked the moral framework to resist the opportunity of a quick fuck. The division was explicitly class-based and interlinked with the fear of prostitution as the offer of money for a working-class young man was a surefire road to corruption and perversion. It is not for nothing that even today working-class men who do not present as homosexual yet are still open for sexual encounters with upper and middle-class men are, whether or not money is actually exchanged, often known as trade, a usage that came to be in the 1870s. While inverts could be the subject of treatment, sympathy, and even poetry, Perverts could expect little more than for the long arm of the law to feel them up. This link was already emerging at the conclusion of the Bolton and Park trial, and there was concern that current laws weren't sufficient to deal with this rising moral threat to the empire's youth. In his summing up, Lord Justice Cockburn lamented the lack of legal tools he had as a judge to deal with the problem, saying, it is one of those instances to which the provisions of a most useful act for the prevention of public indecency might be extended. If the law cannot reach it as it is, it ought to be made the subject of such legislation and a punishment of two or three months imprisonment with the treadmill attached to it, with, in the case of repetition of the offence, a little wholesome corporal discipline would, I think, be effective, not only in such cases, but in all cases of outrage against public decency. Cockburn got his way, but not until 1880. It's pronounced Coburn. <laughs> As I was saying, Cockburn got his way. Coburn got his way, but not until 1885 when the public... Why didn't you warn me about that when we talked about it? <laughs> <laughs> so we say Cockburn seven times in front of these nice people. Cockburn, Coburn got his way. 
Coburn got his way, but not until 1885, when the public outcry following W.T. Stead's expose on child sex trafficking forced the government to act. The government's response was to expedite the criminal law amendment bill, which had been languishing in the doldrums of the committee for the past few years. The new act was primarily focused on the subject of Stead's expose, addressing prostitution and child trafficking. But Stead also contacted the liberal MP, Henry Labouchere, a theater owner, drawing his attention to the phenomenon of homosexuality. And Labouchere introduced an amendment to the bill that would criminalize all acts of gross indecency between two men. The crime of buggery, as was clear from the Bolton and Park case, was extremely hard to prove, and the horrific sentence made prosecutions rare. Gross indecency, however, was never defined in law, which meant that the lower sentencing provisions, though still horrific, up to two years with or without hard labor, could encourage more prosecutions, and they certainly did. The amendment was discussed for mere minutes, but tens of thousands of men would be prosecuted for consensual acts of sex with other adult men over the next 82 years that it remained law in England, and longer still in Scotland and Northern Ireland. These included Oscar Wilde himself and Alan Turing. It invested a huge amount of power in the hands of law enforcement and the judiciary, with very little clarity as to what constituted either gross indecency or procuring sex. Before, anal sex resulting in ejaculation was prohibited. Now everything that manifested desire was pulled into the remit of the law, including flirting, propositioning, and kissing. It was the first law to explicitly target sex between men rather than merely the act of anal sex regardless of gender. And it was also incorporated into penal codes across the British Empire, remaining from section 377A of the Penal Code of Singapore to section 165 of the Kenyan Penal Code, in almost identical wording to the Labouchere Amendment, as testament to the long and brutal relationship between colonialism and the moral fear of homosexual behavior. These laws had a powerful effect on Jack Saul's life. In 1884, just before the Criminal Law Amendment Act went through Parliament, Jack was called by police to return to Dublin. There, two prominent British officials had been accused of sodomy in the newspaper United Ireland by its publisher, William O'Brien. The newspaper had been established by the Irish Nationalist Political Party, the Irish National League, by Charles Stuart Parnell. These accusations were clearly politically motivated. Accusations of sodomy served as ways for both Brits and Irish to attempt to discredit the agents of the opposition. The potency of such allegations with the public were such that men were frequently blackmailed for fear that their secrets might be leaked, often by the lower class young men they had sex with and occasionally paid for. Yet it was allegations from within the same social class that could cause the most damage. United Ireland's rumors were not totally unfounded given that the two men accused were the Duchess, Gustavus Cornwall, secretary of the General Post Office, and James Ellis French, the Royal Irish Constabulary Detective, both of whom were well known among the homosexual underground social scenes of Dublin. French and Cornwall both decided to sue their accuser but were ill-advised to do so because a libel trial is likely to raise all sorts of stories about your sex life, most of them true. The jury found in favor of O'Brien, and again, as the trial of Oscar Wilde revealed, the stories raised in civil court made the criminal trial almost inevitable. Politically speaking, this trial was serious news. Not only was the soldier Martin Kerwin brought up as a witness, but numerous other soldiers were implicated in sex parties and general debauchery. 
Jack had avoided giving a deposition in the libel trial, but at the second trial, Martin Kerwin was also to face justice, alongside others including the chairman of the Dublin Stock Exchange, policemen, merchants, and soldiers. Saul's close relationship with Kerwin meant he was bound to be called up at some point. As in many of these cases, the implications were clear. Testify against your clients of higher social standing, or face the same or even worse fate. Yet despite giving a deposition, the prosecution never called Saul, presumably because too much time had passed between the crime and the trial. Kerwin and Cornwall were both acquitted because the crown could not prove its case. Always a tricky task when it was one man's word against the other, but their lives and reputations were destroyed. Jack, however, could return to London and his job. Scandal, however, seemed to follow Saul. Back in London, he made contact again with his old friend and erstwhile pimp, Charles Hammond. In 1887, he moved into a house that Hammond ran at 19 Cleveland Street. This is also nearby, I believe. The house was tall and thin and facing the Middlesex Hospital, which dominated the area of North Soho, abutted a house for young nurses. Hammond ran an unusual establishment. Not only did the house function as a brothel for male sex workers, rare enough for the time, but it was extremely tastefully decorated, (laughs) making it the ideal place for a well-heeled gentleman of a certain persuasion with a taste for younger men, rough trade or soldiers, or apparently curtains, uh, but who did not wish to spend his evening kneeling in the mud and dark at Hyde Park. Why not? Um, The servants offered made this discreet venue a popular place. The services offered made this discreet venue a popular place for upper-class men. And for a few years, it operated largely under the radar of the authorities, but that state of affairs did not last for long, thanks to an incident across the city at the Central Telegraph Office just beyond St. Paul's Cathedral. At that time, large amounts of money were sent by post, and the post office employed a veritable squadron of teenage boys as messengers, carrying mail and telegraphs around the city of London. The post office reported a theft from its building, and Constable Luke Hanks was tasked with investigating this not uncommon offense. He suspected a 15-year-old telegraph messenger, Charles Swinscoe. He found 14 shillings on Swinscoe and was sure he had nabbed his offender, whose weekly pay was, after all, only a couple of shillings. But pressed on how he got the money, the boy admitted he earned it himself from a Mr. Charles Hammond of 19 Cleveland Street, saying, I'll, get, I'll tell you the truth. I got the money for going to bed with gentlemen at his house. Not only this, but Swinscoe told the police that another messenger boy named Henry Newlove was also working there. This passing admission proved explosive. Not only was the running of a male brothel a serious offense, but the fact that post office employees were implicated was even more worrying. Hanks passed the case up his chain of command until it reached the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, who himself assigned Detective Frank Aberlein to the case an indication of just how seriously they took it, for two years earlier, Aberlein had been the detective in charge of the investigation into Jack the Ripper. Aberlein attained a warrant to arrest Hammond, but Hammond had been tipped off and left the country. Newlove protested to the police that he was facing prosecution while, quote, men in high positions are allowed to walk about free, and named a series of important figures as clients of Cleveland Street, including Lord Arthur Somerset and the Earl of Euston. This made the case a sensitive political issue. Lord Arthur Somerset was no minor aristocrat. His father was the former conservative MP turned peer and privy councillor, the Duke of Beaufort, and Arthur himself managed the stables of the Prince of Wales. Lord Somerset it was, uh, was, it seems, allowed to slip out of the country before a trial could commence, but he paid for a lawyer to represent Newlove and another of Hammond's men. 
The Met Commissioner was keen to seek Somerset charge, but upon his return to England, no less a figure than the Lord, Som than the Lord Chancellor vetoed him. But why was Somerset allowed to go free, when it was quite clear, as in Dublin, that the British state was prepared to crack down on sodomy? Perhaps the answer is in a letter the assistant public prosecutor, whose responsibility it was to drop charges, wrote to his boss, saying, quote, I am told that Newton, the defendant's lawyer, has boasted that if we go on a very distinct, if we go on, a very distinguished person will be involved, P.A.V. I don't mean to say that I for one instant credit it, but in such circumstances as this, one never knows what may be said, be concocted, or be true. Some historians, including the venerable historian of gay life in Britain, H. Montgomery Hyde, suggest that P.A.V. stands, rather convincingly, for Prince Albert Victor, the son of the Prince of Wales and second in line to the British throne, known to friends and family as Eddie. Indeed, while abroad, Lord Somerset would write to a friend, I cannot see what good it would do Prince Eddie if I went to court. I might um, do him harm because if I was ever asked if I ever heard anything against him, whom from, has any person mentioned with whom he went there, etc., the question would be very awkward. I have never mentioned the boy's name, brackets PAV, except to Sir Dighton Probyn, Oliver Montague, and Francis Nollies. <laughs> Had they been wise, hearing what I knew and therefore what others knew, they ought to have hushed the matter up instead of stirring it up as they did with all the authorities. You might recall that the Prince of Wales had once allegedly taken Eddie to the Monto in Dublin, presumably to shore up his heterosexuality and give him a taste of the world. Uh, the thought of his son and heir being publicly implicated in a homosexual scandal would have been beyond appalling to the British royal family. Eddie's brother, who became George V and Elizabeth II's the grandfather, Elizabeth II's grandfather, once remarked on the case of another outed homosexual aristocrat some 50 years later, quote, I thought men like that shot themselves. Yet the attempt at a discreet cover-up collapsed when Ernst Park of the radical North London press was tipped off and named the Earl of Euston as party to the affair, decrying the fact that he'd been allowed to leave the country. The Earl, however, had not left the country and started libel proceedings against Park. And it was at this trial that Jack Saul appeared as a witness for the defense. It was here that he provided the testimony that shocked Victorian London, including descriptions of the Earl's sexual habits and his taste for ejaculating onto boys' stomachs. He described picking him up on Piccadilly before taking a cab with him to Cleveland Street, the warning the Earl gave him not to talk to him if he saw him on the street, and the Earl's returns visits to Cleveland Street, though not to see Saul. The court was shocked to hear Saul's ungilded descriptions of male prostitution in London, and the judge was shocked to discover that Saul had already divulged this information, including the names of prominent clients like the MP and judge advocate General George Cavendish Bentnick, and that no action had been taken. Everybody was shocked by his claim that the police shut their eyes, not only to his behavior, but to more of the same. In the end, the judge was inclined toward the Earl, to nobody's surprise, describing Saul to the jury as a, quote, revolting creature whose testimony was not to be believed. Park was convicted and sent to 12 months hard labor, and Saul's name was dragged through the mud by the press, many of whom called for him to be tried either for sodomy or perjury. Other newspapers, such as Reynolds, might have thought Saul a filthy, loathsome, detestable beast, but pointed out that while the Earl's account of how he ended up at Cleveland Street just once accidentally was uncorroborated, uh, many others had witnessed him there several times. Why were they to be believed just because they were, quote, persons in a very low grade in life? 
Surely he did not expect that the Archbishop of Canterbury would appear in that box and testify to having met the Earl coming to or from that den of infamy. Newspapers also criticized the injustice of the young men being prosecuted while aristocrats escaped, highlighting the contemporary discourses of homosexuality that associated it with the perversion of the working class by middle and upper class inverts generally, and prostitution more specifically. What then is the conclusion to come to, asked Reynolds the following week. Why, that the authorities are more anxious to conceal the names of those who patronized the horrible den of vice and pun than punish the principal patrons of that horrible place? Why were the wretched telegraph boys taken to the Old Bailey while Lord Arthur Somerset, being duly warned of what had occurred, duly made his escape and is now living in Clover abroad? One MP did address this clearly unjust situation in Parliament, going as far as to implicate the young Prince Eddie and his father, the Prince of Wales, although not by name. He accused the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, and his cabinet of having attempted to cover up the activities of, quote, a gentleman of very high position at Cleveland Street, he stated that it is the common talk in the workshops of this country respecting the case um, that the law is not fairly administered as between the rich man and the poor man, that justice is not fairly meted out between man and man, regardless of rank and social position, and thus great harm has been done by the course which has been adopted. We've heard a good deal lately about criminal conspiracy. What is this case but a criminal conspiracy by the very guardians of public morality and law, with the Prime Minister at their head to defeat the ends of justice? Thank goodness nothing like that happens anymore. <laughs> um, that MP was Henry Labouchere, whose amendment to the Criminal Law Amendment Act five years earlier had created the offense of gross indecency, which was here at the heart of the case. There's a certain irony at play here, not just that he was the creator of the sloppy law he now felt was unfairly applied, while he was concerned with equality in the eyes of the law and the unfair way in which working-class homosexuals were treated in comparison with the wealthy, as when England partially decriminalized those acts in the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967, that commitment to equality wasn't reflected in the law itself, which required that if men do have sex, it occurred in a private dwelling in which they were alone, a situation that brings with it a certain class restriction for those who did not own or rent a private house. As late as 1998, consenting adult men in the UK were being prosecuted for having sex in the presence of other consenting adults, as this violated this clause of the Sexual Offenses Act. Indeed, the 1957 Wolfenden Report, which led to the 1967 Sexual Offenses Act, was a publication of the finding of the Departmental Committee on Homosexual Offenses and Prostitution, its conclusion indicating that the link between prostitution and homosexuality was still firmly in the mind of the public and lawmakers. It was the treatment of the well-off friends of Lord Montague, and especially the testimony of his Oxford University colleague, Peter Wildblood, who was jailed in 1954 for having had gay sex two years before on Montague's estate, that was integral in convincing the committee the law should be changed. Like the Labouchere Amendment, the 1967 Act was an attempt to reform the law, but not to improve the lives of homosexual men. It even failed to reduce sentences, as after its passage, after 1967, prosecutions of gay men rose considerably, just as post-1885, tens of thousands of men were prosecuted and countless more became subject to blackmail. All of this was too late for Jack Saul anyway. Unlike the aristocrats, there was nobody to document the life of an old Irish working class queer. He took a job at the Marlborough Hotel at number 23 Villiers Street just by Charing Cross Railway Station. A few years later, he moved back to Dublin and there were a few traces of him in the census at addresses like Poolbeg Street and Luke Street,
before his death was recorded at Our Lady's Hospice on the 28th of August, 1904, from tuberculosis. Such fluent readers. Um, the first question is pr pretty simple, really, is that I think in that chapter, what we kind of see, which is something that you do throughout the book, is that it starts obviously in quite like a, a, a salacious story about an individual and ends with kind of the formation of a homosexual identity under the criminal law. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, yeah, what made you pick Jack Saul to do that and more broadly, like why you picked the people you picked for the, for the chapters in the book from the podcast? Well, <clears throat> well, in the podcast, we use each each episode is a discrete episode where we use uh, the lives to talk about of certain um, LGBTQ figures to talk m about uh, various issues. And when we came to writing a book, we were sort of discussing what story we wanted to tell, and there were recurrent themes that come up throughout the podcast um, around the formation of uh, homosexual identity in Europe in the late nineteenth century and its relationship with colonialism uh, specifically, and um, and then our own personal politics, which is, I suppose, about the failure of the project of like a white male homosexuality in Europe. So the people we chose for, for the book are people specifically to, ch to tell that story. Um, it's not supposed to be like the podcast, a sort of survey of um, bad LGBTQ lives, but it's specifically about this creation of this white male homosexual identity and its relationship with the colonial project. Um, so we chose we chose Saul specifically because you you see in his story such a fundamental um, part of the wider sto story, especially in the United Kingdom, which is um, the, the the criminalization of the homosexual subject. And that, as we see in when they're talking about Bolton and Park, um, there's in in the process of defining law and th finding out what the law is, they are forced to create a criminalized subject. Um, they, they know it's wrong, but they, don't, they can't pin down what it is that's wrong, and they have to then come up with something that will stand up in court. And in doing so, then they, they create not just the acts, but this general idea that, okay, there are these men in this city who seem to be spending all their time together and drinking together and uh, sometimes dressing as women and, and having anal sex, or, but it's not always anal sex, and so like, how, do we, how do we pin this down? And so they create this very, very expansive law. Um, and in doing so, they then export that to the empire. And you see that link of how this concept of a homosexual identity, uh, as it's conceived within a sort of medicalized and criminalized framework, is then pushed out across the world. So, um, so yeah, and the, the, so the subjects we choose in the book, um, perhaps controversially, the, they are almost entirely um, white men, uh, with the exception of um, Margaret Mead and Yukio Mishima who we also chose because they also have this role to play in understanding the, col the col colonialized nature of that project. Um, but we chose them specifically because that's the story we wanted to tell. We're not trying to tell a sort of wider grab bag of like all the terrible gays in history. <laughs> yeah. I think the, yeah, you answered about, about Saul well, uh, but just a little bit about that narrative technique because it is the narrative technique of the show and the book, both of which are based on academic and intellectual and activist conversations that have been going on for a long time. This is not new. Um, these ideas and these concepts are not new. Um, but they haven't made it out of, they haven't made it into the kind of mainstream conversation about queer people and queer lives, which is really stuck in 
a completely outmoded understanding of what homosexuality is, how it came to be, what its meanings are, what the sort of political possibilities are of thinking about all of that. Um, and so we wanted to tell those stories in a compelling way or, or convey those ideas in a compelling way through storytelling, um, which I think is what history should be about because history isn't a science. History is poems about ghosts, and it's true. Um, and so if you, can, if you can show in the course of a life or in the story of the life and the microcosm of a life how um, these big, the kinds of structural processes and shifts that all kind of leftist history is about, how those things actually work themselves out in the course of a life, um, then I think you can communicate that in a way um, that can hopefully um, get more people thinking about things like this um, instead of thinking about uh, queer history as, oh, it's Pride Month, here's a list of like five people starting with Alexander the Great and ending with Oscar Wilde who are you know, so wonderful and, 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 so, and so fantastic. Uh, and of course, it's important to remember queer heroes too. But all of these people are people, and that's kind of the that's kind of the starting point of the project. Um, for people who maybe haven't listened to the podcast or read the book, although like, I think probably people have listened to the to the podcast if they're here, um, I was going to ask like two questions about the, the the title "Bad Gays." The first part, the bad part. What because you there are many ways that you could have like framed or, or chosen to do write a popular history of homosexuality, but this idea of bad gays suggests that you're kind of uh, wanting to elevate figures because there's a history being told where perhaps there's good gays or that there have been people, heroes or saints of, of history. Um, I'm just interested in like how you came to the idea that you wanted to, to sort of tell the story of people who led maybe like corrupt or um, unseemly or unpalatable lives. You can start with that one. Well, it was your idea, so. <laughs> Um, we chose Bad Gays uh, because it's a very good title. <laughs> uh, it, the other option was Killer Fruit, which comes from a Trimble Capote quote about people with Freon circulating instead of blood in their veins. But Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we chose it because the two words reflect back on each other, right? Is, are, they, are, they, are they gays who are bad or are they people who are bad at being gay is, is, part, is part of it. And, and I think that's the second thing is what's kind of emerged throughout telling the story is actually... Uh, and the podcast itself is is um, yeah like this mm -hmm. this story of uh, the sometimes the offshoots around a homosexual identity as 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 types of homosexual subjectivity have become mainstream or understood or legible to the wider society as people sort of off the edges which you can start with Bosi right like he, he extremely um, provocative and uh, sort of countercultural to say at that time that, that homosexuality is not just okay, but something to be proud of, the, the most noble form of, of love, um, the love that dare not speak its name. Um, and those are, it's sometimes those people are offshooting in various ways that help create the new form of homosexual subjectivity that emerges. So, so the way perhaps in a sort of Western LGBT rights sphere, as we've come to understand um, like a, a gay identity, in, within the LGBTQ discourse, someone like Ernst Rehm, who was the, the, first, um, the first openly gay politician in the world, who was also the leader of the SA, an actual literal Nazi, um, joined the Nazi party before Hitler, um, that his form of homosexual sub subjectivity, his, his identity as a homosexual man, as he understood it, um, was, which was built around uh, like masculinism and uh, that he's... Uh, even more manly, and he, you know, he's wanting to, uh, 
uh, sort of evade what was happening at the time in the mainstream discourse around it in Germany, which is, um, I guess, around gender deviance and inversion. So he's like, no, I'm just purely man. I'm not inverted. I'm just, I'm so masculine. I'm so, so much of a man that I have no interest in sleeping with women. All I want to do is sleep with men and kill, kill people. Right. <laughs> but we see, so you see these stories like inter, 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 interweaving um, and these are the bad gays and obviously like very few of them we adopt as heroes but, we, but from those, their, their, their badness and the way that their, their sexuality uh, relates with their life story and it forces them into these weird situations and you get people like um, Roy Cohn who um, uh, just truly, truly horrendous man who never ever publicly identified as homosexual and would, would sue the arse of anyone who came close to claiming he was homosexual but yet lived a like, very openly homosexual life with his boyfriends and, and in his office and by the pool and stuff um, that his his life story and his sexuality are obviously intrinsically tied together, and he was bad because of the way he was gay in, some, in certain ways. That was good. Um, <laughs> cool. The other, th- yeah, the other part of the title is gays, and I guess it would be worth just talking a little bit. I mean, you, do, you discuss it in the introduction of the book about your approach, that obviously there is this contested idea in any kind of queer history, and it, you kind of touched on it in, in that chapter with Bolton and Park. It's the same thing that I also had writing about trans history, is that people get kind of huffy either way. Like if you retroactively apply modern identity labels onto the past, but also people get pretty annoyed. Like you're accused of erasure if you sort of don't claim everyone is gay or trans. Um, what was your approach to that in the formation of the podcast? And yeah, do you, do you think it's, it's just a useful device to be kind of a bit sassy? Or yeah, or is is there some kind of yeah greater benefit to applying the term gay, for example, to the past? I mean, there's uh, there are historians among us, um, <laughs> so I'll be careful about this. Um, so you're right. This is I I, I am a I am a, a person who occasionally commits acts of academia, and he was not. Um, and in those rooms and spaces, there is often a lot of very impassioned, and I think, I don't want to dismiss it, very impassioned and very important granular debate about how you make this kind of identity category determination for someone living in a time when we either we don't have uh, the kinds of documentary evidence that can prove identity claims or living in a time where the identity claims themselves don't actually make that much conceptual sense. And that comes out of a move that happened in the academy that missed the mainstream conversation on LGBT history completely. I think most people in public don't think about this at all, but that moved away from thinking that there is such a thing as an eternal stable minority of gay people who have always been throughout all of time, and they went from oppression into the light, and now we're here, and isn't it great? Uh, But to instead think about sexuality, both homosexuality and heterosexuality, as being dependent on all kinds of other systems at all different kinds of other places in all kinds of other times. And so as a process of trying to think about that more carefully, um, those debates have taken on a huge, those debates are, they are almost dominant in certain uh, academic queer history spaces about, you know, is it appropriate? Can we say this? What can we say about whom can we say it? Um, What we decided to do in this was to focus on people who could tell us about what gay means now. So when we, when we call Hadrian a bad gay, 
we don't mean to say, and in fact, we're very careful to lay out in the chapter, all of the ways that the system of, like the way that Hadrian is expressing same-sex desire is not how I express same-sex desire, is probably not how anyone in this room expresses same-sex desire, is not something that makes any sense to us when we close our eyes and think gay man, we don't see this sex-gender system. Um, but because of the way that what Hadrian did became remembered, because of the way that Hadrian becomes an icon uh, for um, other generations of, of, of people, uh, and because of the influence that that has on people who we would describe as gay, and also because sometimes you go and look in these sources and you read something and you're like, oh, queen. Uh, and, 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 and there also should be room for that and space for that, especially when we're, when we're here um, and, not, and not, um, not making kind of proof claims uh, or truth claims. Um, for that reason, we take the term gay and apply it widely and wildly and sassily. Mm -hmm. um, and inclusively, um, and uh, certainly not in a way, especially for people like Hadrian, uh, that I think either one of us would want to go out and say, this is the gospel historical truth, and if you disagree, uh, go away. We don't want to hear from you. And I think that's actually been something that's characterized the whole show, is whenever we make these determinations, we try to really show our work, and we'll tell you if we're making a leap of faith that we feel like we're making. We'll explain why we think it's important, and if you disagree, you can disagree, please. Um, but if you follow us, then we think you can learn something by following us that way. Um, there's a lot of, well, we're in Pride Month, so if anyone logs online, there's a lot of really bad gay history floating around just in terms of like, factually. <laughs> um, like, um, is there anything, you, you talked about how you focused on subjects that would like, perhaps reveal something about how we think about gay people today. That suggests maybe, and you can be catty if you like, it would be good at this point, um, what, what you think is perhaps was wrong, that you, there must have been something you maybe wanted to set out to correct about popular ideas of gay history or received wisdom about particularly gay men. Um, and I'd be interested to know what they were and if you've had any like uh, interaction with listeners that have, you know, been difficult or people have challenged you or they don't like what you're arguing? We've had a lot of interaction with listeners and that's been like one of the most actually most enjoyable things, even the really critical ones. Um, and uh, some of those things have really shaped the way we've made the show and I think it's been a big learning process for us as well. And if one of the really things, nice, nice things about writing a book and getting to do these, these events is now I can meet people and have those conversations in person as well. Um, and yes, we so, for example, in the first season, we only featured um, gay men. And Ben would make this little joke in the episode about how we're choosing gay men because men are definitionally more evil. Uh, and, which is funny or whatever, teehee. But <laughs> we then got saw, saw messages saying, like, this is kind of a fucked up thing to say because it's really essentialist. Like, like, and you're really uh, depriving like, whole other st stories that are just as in integral to telling the story of... Um, the development of like queerness and homosexuality and we're like oh yeah shit that's entirely true and secondly that because I think in the process of doing the show we, we've helped I think develop like a two-way um, sense of trust with the audience so we can then um, tackle things that I think we wouldn't have tried to tackle in the first season yeah fair to say yeah absolutely um, yeah. So someone like Joe Carstairs, for example, um, like I think would have been like a difficult one to jump in in the first season. Hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully we've done that quite, like 
hopefully we've not trod on too many toes. I think I think it's been okay. But um, where's I going this? Oh, but at the same time, we do have some. Uh, we do get some like really great wild accusations. <laughs> I mean, especially from Morrissey fans. I see. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I regularly feel the Morrissey fans, have, and, and normally the, 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 Morris, the criticism from the Morrissey fans is just that he's included in the first place. Like, you'll argue with him and say, well, what did you actually disagree with in the show? And like, well, I haven't listened to the show because <laughs> I, it's appalling to put Morrissey next to, um, next to a racist. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> um, but I think, I think at this point, like, if you are um, a diehard Morrissey fan, um, you, you're beyond that sort of conversation. <laughs> Like, it's very clear. <laughs> but, um, there are limits to how much we can help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, sorry, that was a bit, bit off topic, but I guess, yeah, I guess that's, what, that's how that's been the conversation that we've sort of had. And then, uh, and some of the criticism as, as well, we've had like long, long email conversations of, with listeners in, uh, who, who, we, who uh, approach us with criticism in good faith, uh, not Morrissey fans. Uh, and they've been super productive in the way we've structured and, uh, the show and the, some of the subjects we've tackled and the way we've tackled some of the subjects. Because, yeah. because, um, because one of the things I think that's really important to do in this sort of gay history um, and talking about these subjects is that our sexual <clears throat> history and the history of the formation of, of our sexual identity as we understand it today is tied up with some really, really fucking dodgy stuff. Um, and... It's understandable that someone in, uh, I don't know, a mainstream paper or a, a, a light, fluffy sort of website that, that has to get advertised and stuff, doesn't wanna, they don't want to have conversations about like, the role of pederasty in the formation of a homosexual identity yep. or, um, or the lives of people like uh, Benjamin Britten, for example. Really complicated stories that take a lot of nuance. So I think that's, um, that's been like, one of the really important things that I think, because I think as... LGBTQ people, like, we are prepared to have those, we, we do want to have those conversations, we do want to understand ourselves and how we came to be, and we don't just want this, like, um, it's Pride Month, let's, um, you know, turn Pret's logo rainbow or something, like we, we, like, we understand ourselves and our histories as much more complicated and nuanced and interesting, and this is how we come to be, so let's, like, sit down as adults and, like, if the straight people don't want to, and cishet people don't want to have that conversation, they can go to Pratt and we can have these conversations. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was just thinking about like it's also the fact it's it's not just it's not just the Pratt thing. It's also I think that sometimes people, yeah, there's a, people want kind of heroes or there's this obsession with like positive representation, um, that like is just all pervasive so that people can't be fucked up or whatever because it might be reinforcing a negative stereotype and that kind of like respectability. Yeah. Politics. Yeah, and that, and that really gets in the way, I think, of even thinking about people who we would absolutely think about as heroes, people we would never include in this project. Um, I think it does a real disservice to them to just talk about them as saints. I mean, the, the, project, the project is not a sort of queer history version of your faves are problematic. We are not on <laughs> Tumblr. It is not 2014. Um, we... <laughs> instead want to, as Hugh said, have this kind of grown-up conversation about complication. Starting from bad somehow lets us do that, uh, because you, we, we, from the write-off, we are not trying to excuse anything that someone did. Uh, we are not trying to rehabilitate them. We are not trying to... And then once you, like, once you do that, once you write them off, 
you can then actually be complicated. Mm. You can then actually address things that they did that were good, or you can address ways that they implicate us. Um, we are uncomfortable all the time making that, which is which making this, which is correct, because we are implicated in this, because we are white gay men writing a book about why white homosexuality doesn't work. Um, and so that's the um, yeah that's been the kind of that's been the kind of impulse behind it um, is to is to just lean into complication as much as possible, and it's been really wonderful that um, people when we thought we were making it for four people and now it's been downloaded a million times so that's pretty good. Audience questions. I'm so glad. Actually, I... before we take audience questions, I want to do one last thing, which I should have done after the reading. Um, if you listen to the show, you know that we always talk about where we got the um, where we got the things from. And so, I just wanted to mention there's one of these for every chapter in the book. A further reading at the end, in addition to the end notes, but just to mention the four books that that was mostly based on. Um, the first is a 2006 book by Glenn Chandler called *The Sins of Jack Saul*. The second is by uh, H. Montgomery Hyde, one of our most cited uh, sources. *The Cleveland Street Scandal*, 1976. Um, Neil McKenna wrote a book about Fanny and Stella called uh, The Young Men Who Shocked Victoria in England, and that's 2014. And then uh, Saul's own memoir, The Sins of the City of the Plain, and that's 1881. And we hope that people will find their way through our book um, to some more kinds of writing about the people they're interested in. So check those out. Thanks, Pam. Um, that was good. That was a good buffer as well, because people have got time, because we're going to have that inevitable thing where someone doesn't put their hand up. Um, we've got time for like about five questions. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, should we go here and then come over here? Uh, hi. 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 <laughs> um, you mentioned about how you wanted your book as a, as a way to bring in the conversation about how we come from a history of basically fucked up people. But... I think listening to your podcast has also brought my attention that among us today, among our acts ourselves today, there's some fucked up stuff. So fucked up not just for ourselves, but fucked up with respect to certain privileges or like not privileges, but certain rights that now we take for granted and are okay, allow us to live our lives like, like, like we live it today. So what would you say to someone who would come to you and tell you, you're, the light you're putting on those fucked up things, you're doing it in history, but they exist today. And the minute the states would notice they still exist today, they're going to take away those rights. What do you have to say to that? I mean, um, I'll start by answering with a joke, which is my friend Sholem always says, gays don't deserve rights. Look what we did with them. Um, but to answer your question seriously, because it is a serious question, um, I think one of the things that we are both really convinced of is that this backlash that we're seeing now, because it's not, I mean, the backlash that you're describing as a hypothetical is happening, right? Um, uh, trans people, and especially trans women, have in this country become a, the object of one of the most dangerous, uh, violent, and stupid um, moral panics that I can think of. Um, in the U.S., uh, trans kids are being persecuted by the state. They are being forcibly detransitioned. They are being like strip-searched to participate in athletics. Um, queer people are being described as groomers, the whole edifice, potentially, of jurisprudence on which legal equality for, for, for um, gay people in the U.S. rests is potentially under attack. This is happening now. Um, 
I think we think that the public conversation and the understanding of the history of sexuality and the meaning of sexuality that got us here and that built those edifices of civil equality that are now under attack, that their insufficiency is part of the reason why that attack can function. And so that actually by having this more adult conversation and by trying to develop politics of alliance and solidarity that are not just about why we have always been like this, so you have to let us be like this because science says so. Science, I mean, who has found the gay gene? If someone finds it, tell me. I hope they don't because then, well, anyway, I hope they don't. Um, they'll try to breed it out. They will um, if it's found. Um, and, but it won't be because they, it, it doesn't exist, right? Um, th that if we, can build the, if we can build the politics of alliance and solidarity that are capable of um, actually sort of holding and functioning, that that's the way to actually get to some kind of long-term, um, long-term, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Justice, um, collective justice, safety, um, that. Yeah, well, you know, I 100% agree. And I, I think just to further that point, the, the part of the story that the book tells is the development, the, the, the changing idea that homosexuality is some sort of affliction, whether that's a, a, a medical affliction or a moral affliction uh, or, or something like this, and which, which has developed an, into uh, an understanding, an argument for political rights, which is based around uh, the fact that we were, to quote Lady Gaga, born this way. Uh, which plays a really, as a slogan, plays a really important function. And, and if you're come to terms with your sexuality and uh, you don't want to be, you know, then there is something very powerful about that. But the actual conversation is much more complicated. And uh, from my position or from my, in my opinion, um, but most importantly, it doesn't fucking matter whether I was born this way or I chose to, chose to be this way or this is something that developed or I can, I can have some sort of autonomy and... I can shape my sexual desires into a different direction if I want. I don't give a fuck. That doesn't have any consequence on whether I should be allowed to do it or you should be allowed to stop me from being that person and doing that. And there's something of a rearguard's defense by saying, uh, I deserve these rights because I can't help it. Like, I deserve these rights because I deserve these rights. And fuck you if you're a straight person or a cishet person who says, um, I can't have it, like, I'm going to fight you on that ground. Um, and I'm going to fight for the rights of all LGBTQ people to develop our sexuality and our uh, genders in new and interesting directions that have never been thought of before um, because um, I want to. That's, our, that's my desire. <laughs> yeah. There's a question over there, yeah. Hi. Um, the last chapter in your book's on Pim Fortune, which I imagine is the name that most people sitting here would actually be alive to have been aware of. Um, so you've talked in this about the kind of colonial mindset, and Pim Fortune is one of those people who kind of really demonstrates the white supremacy um, aspect here, in that here's a gay man who's been brought up in a comfortable environment and jumps on board this moral panic of Islam um, and kind of absolutely goes down and weaponizes his sexuality. And so all of a sudden, you gays need to be scared of these Muslims because they'll throw you off buildings and topple walls on top of you. When up until 2001, most of us 
wouldn't have given it a second thought. And in doing so, he started to work with kind of the right wing, which, going back to the point you made about the insane, crazy, anti-trans approach that we're seeing at the moment, is kind of people working with the Heritage Foundation. Do you kind of see then this absolute adoration of kind of this this deep division, even just within kind of the LGB community and the LGBTQ community, as continuing to develop this kind of the bad gay, the, the colonial mindsets? Well, hopefully in, telling the, in the story of a book, we've given some genealogy to how that relate that relationship between the, like, the white male European gay man, an, an American gay man, and, uh, and colonialism and racism developed. And you can see in Fortoin, you can see his predecessors in people like Lawrence of Arabia, for example, uh, T. Lawrence. Um, and that is still going to develop further. There's always been that complicated relationship of, of uh, um, the, the fetishization of the colonized other at the same time as uh, uh, perpetuating those sort of systems, right? So Pimpotone is a very interesting example because um, uh, he, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like someone says, oh, uh, what, what would you say to people who say you're a racist? And he says, how can I be a racist? I love sucking Turkish men's cocks. You know, so that's part of, and we, like, I think everybody has had an example of knowing someone who speaks like that now. So that system is continuing to, to develop. And that's like a, not just an alliance, but it's like a trade-off, I think, that comes from the relationship of whiteness and homosexuality, and the two things can come together. And, and, and I think that's also a really important sort of part of this political discussion about what's wrong with the rights-based agenda now is that it can enable those sort of positions where to say, like, I am a gay man, so how can I be uh, discriminatory against other people? Mm. Uh, and yeah, so we go into some depth in it there, and it will continue. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's a relationship that's going to develop in ever more appalling ways. Um, but is part of at the end of the book, the, in our conclusion, a sort of call for a sense of solidarity that moves beyond the uh, prioritization of a sexual identity as the sole formation of a sol sense of solidarity. Yeah, in, in Germany, where I live, unfortunately, those streams are already crossing. Um, the sort of four town, I mean, there's a, yeah, I, mean, I, I won't say more about it, but it's happening. I mean, sadly. I think not in the last election, but I remember in the election before, presidential election in France before, um, white gay men were the majority voting for Marine Le Pen. So, yeah. yeah, this is, yeah. Proportionately. The great, the great replacement theory was developed by, uh, by uh, Reno, uh, Reno Camus, who is also a, was a gay man and wrote cruising books in the 1970s. We've got time for one more question. Thanks very much. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm very excited about reading the book. I've been a dedicated listener since the start of the podcast. I wanted to ask two things. Firstly, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your decision to include Margaret Mead in the book. I'm just going to leave that question open. You can say whatever you like. I'm interested in your choice there. And secondly, can you see, is there scope for this to kind of blow out into kind of like a Star Wars franchise, Police Academy 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6? Is there going to be a bad gaze 2, 3, 4, 5, mm -hmm. etc.? You can do Mead. I'll take Mead. Sure. Um, so, including Margaret Mead. So, as we said, the, the book... 
The remit of the show has, since we were gently and correctly uh, changed course by our listeners after the first season, the remit of the show has now expanded. The remit of the show is about evil and complicated queers in history writ large. Um, as we put the book together, um, in large part thanks to our incredible editor, Leo Adverso, um, we decided to, rather than just do the book as a grab bag of stories, to instead try to tell a story. And the story that we ended up telling was how the white gay man happened and why that was a mistake. And so we picked people who helped us tell that story. Why does Mead help us tell that story? Well, first of all, Mead is a really important scientist and a really important public intellectual <laughs> who is part of this um, circle of anthropologists um, around uh, Franz Boas. She's a student of Franz Boas at Columbia. Boas is a uh, liberal German Jew uh, who moves to the United States and has a department at Columbia that changes, makes it, um, enormous changes in the practice of anthropology away from scientific racism and towards an approach that emphasizes the comparative study of different cultures. Um, theoretically attempting to understand each of those cultures on its own independent basis, um, actually often, re, um, first of all, based on fundamentally unequal relationships of power and exchange, right? Because you are still the white Columbia anthropologist going to meet these people and you know, learn their language in two weeks and tell the world all about who they are and what they do. Um, but also often reproducing really problematic to use an overused word, ideas about um, who those people were and what, uh, what the relationship between them and modernity, quote unquote, civilization, quote unquote, were. Um, so Mead, is, uh, Mead ends up becoming more famous than her teacher. Her first book, uh, Coming of Age in Samoa, becomes a bestseller. It's a work of academic anthropology that becomes a bestseller in the United States in the 1920s because it is explicitly targeted to American cultural anxiety about dating and the sort of sexual problems of teenagers um, and posits Samoa, which is where she studied, as this sort of rosy, quote unquote, primitive alternative where there's no neuroses and everything is wonderful um, and it's sort of sexual freedom and sexual liberation. While she's doing this, she is bisexual, secretly, having many affairs with many interesting people, including Ruth Benedict, who's one of her, uh, for a while, one of her teachers, and then a, a longtime friend and, and lover, and there's that great book by Lois Banner, uh, Intertwined Lives, about the two of them. Um, and then Mead's work and Benedict's work gets taken up and cited by gay liberation activists in the 50s and 60s to use this comparative study of cultures that shows that, hey, there's all kinds of homosexuality out there, and it's actually sort of fine outside of us, to prove that that's okay. And so then into the fabric of those homosexual identities are baked all of these really problematic assumptions, um, assumptions that are probably more comfortable to us than the kinds of assumptions that are in scientific race, scientifically racist anthropology, um, but assumptions that are still really fucked up in many ways. That gets baked into the fabric of, of modern gay identity. So that there's that um, Esther Newton, uh, who's one of the first uh, anthropologists who is openly queer, writes a book called Margaret Mead Made Me Gay, um, and other essays, which is very good. Um, and so that's why Mead is in the book. Um, as for, uh, do you want to take the question about, about everyone else? Uh, about about, about our, our Star Wars expanded universe? Yeah, world domination. Bad gays to Tokyo <laughs> No. Uh, <Too> bad, <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, too bad, too gay. Um, I think. Um, I think. Uh, I think one of the things that we both really have liked about it, and I kind of feed back to the thing before about like audiences, like it's a real like amateur show. You know, like we we sort of. You know, a couple of times a year, I'll go to Berlin and he'll come to Barcelona and we'll spend a week just like locked in a sweaty study writing these things and, and doing them. And like we enjoy that, that, that aspect of it. And um, so I, I don't think really expansion, we have any plans for expansion um, other than the fact to, to say that like we are also both writers, like fiction writers. And so the uh, possibility of something around like storytelling and things is something that I think we would be interested in doing. But we're not going to do like, I don't know. Uh, uh, tie-ins or, I don't know, SponCon or anything. Um, you should uh, get TV. That's where all the money is. Yeah, yeah I've, heard, I've heard this. But having, um, having said that, though, we do have a long list of 200 gays that we could... Still, we've 200 got enough, and something, yeah. We've got enough for probably another 20 seasons, so it'll continue on as long as we're not bored doing it. Uh, as well as maybe a spin-off season, because we also have a list of living gays, and we're a little bit... We've had, <laughs> we've had some... Um, <laughs> We had some lawyer letters quite early on in the season. No, no, no lawyer Actually, letters. Not, not, lawyers, not lawyer letters, but like, like vaguely sort of saber-rattling litigious emails from, from um, pissed-off subjects. So there's, there's, there's a and sort of... Four o'clock in the morning in all lowercase. Yeah, four o'clock in the morning, Provincetown time. So we have this... We, we have like a spin-off series, which, is, which I guess might be sort of bad gays obituaries, where we can like finally get it out about all people want to. But if... Um, Maybe if the book gets really big and we make millions and millions and millions, we can put that into our legal fund and we can finally do Peter Thiel, who's our dream. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Bad. 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 Bad.